Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 10 this morning. Matthew 10, but before we begin there, I, I just want to do one thing, and that is to, uh, to acknowledge that uh, Adam Nakotra, this is his last uh, Sunday with us. It's a nice picture of you, Adam. Yeah, yeah you clean up pretty well. And uh, that'll be the last time we'll see hair on the top of your head for a while. Because uh, tomorrow, Adam uh, heads off uh, for the Air Force, and he heads off for basic training. So, uh, so uh, young one, this is a big, life-changing time for you. You have been brought up in a Christian home. You have heard the gospel since you were but a mere child. You have seen it modeled. You have seen it demonstrated in your home and in this body at large. So as you head off into the teeth of the lion's den, may you not forget what has been entrusted to you. We will pray for you and trust that God will use you mightily for his glory. Okay? And we look forward to uh, hearing reports from uh, letters from basic training. They're always fun to read. Always fun to read. So here we are in, uh, in Matthew chapter 10. We're looking at verses 16 through 25 this morning. And uh, some passages of Scripture uh, yield themselves rather easily and readily to the, to the Bible expositor, the Bible student. Some passages do not. The passage we have before us this morning is one of those passages that is not, uh, doesn't easily yield its treasures. It's a, it's a tough nut to crack, as we might say. I remember in seminary, my New Testament professor uh, speaking to us and warning us uh, to not, uh, when we graduated from seminary, not to enter too quickly into the book of Matthew and uh, saying, you know, find some other books to sort of gain your footing in terms of expositing the Scripture. Don't jump right into Matthew's Gospel. It's a difficult Gospel, and uh, you need to mature a little bit in your understanding of the New Testament before you jump right in. So I did wait a while, and uh, I have jumped in, and I think I've arrived at one of those passages that probably was what prompted his warning. You know, it's, it's, like, um, it's like sailing along and everything's smooth and then there are uh, rocks under the surface of the water and uh, that's kind of where we are here. So, um, so we're here in Matthew 10, we're in, uh, in verse uh, 16 and following and here's what I want to do with you this morning. I really wanted to preach a message that would sort of capture the whole thing, but it is Mother's Day and uh, so that means that you stay in here till 1 o'clock for me to finish probably would have gone over like the proverbial lead balloon. So what we're going to have to do is break it into two pieces. And what we'll need to do today is to interpret the passage. So today we're just going to to try to understand what it means, and then next week we'll come back to it, and we'll begin to try to lift some application from it once we understand what it means. So that's the task before us this morning, is, is to understand the passage. 
And this is a Mother's Day message, in case you were wondering about that, because what better gift could you give to a mother than that her, her family, her children, would be exposed to a clear teaching from the Word of God, right? There's no better gift than that. I heard an amen down there. My wife believes that, and that's why it wasn't necessary to buy flowers or chocolates. Anything I would buy her would be merely a cheap substitute for the real stuff. You all right, honey? Yeah, you got it. Yes, I've been married 34 years, and it's still a good marriage. So here we are this morning. We're looking at this text, and there are, there are three observations that I want to make this morning. Three observations from this text that are necessary to make prior to, to beginning to talk about how to apply it to our lives. Okay, So we're just going to make these sort of exegetical, uh, text-based observations. So here they are. First observation from this passage is, number one, this passage wasn't written to us. That's my first observation. This passage was not written to us. Now, I say that, and for some of you, you're thinking, what? Well, what I want you to do is I want you to just sort of sit on that thought for a little bit and let it marinate. And I think you will come to understand what I mean by that. The Bible was written by 40 different men over a period of about 1,500 years when the final book the book of Revelation, was written sometime near the end of the first century. That's just a historical reality. Furthermore, it was written to either individuals or groups of individuals who lived and died a whole long time before the 21st century in which we find ourselves. Beyond that, they lived and died in another part of the world, in a cultural context that is completely alien to anything that we know or understand. Completely alien. Furthermore, the the original purpose for which each and every what we call book of the Scriptures was written is historically bound. It is historically bound. What I mean by that is that it addresses something that was happening or occurring at a point in history that is millennia, thousands of years removed from you and I. This is just reality. It addressed local needs and concerns of God's people through the ages. It was not written to you and I. And so what that means in a very, in a very strict sense is that when we read the Bible, and here we're in Matthew chapter 10, when we read the, the, the pronoun you, is not me that he's talking to. He's not you that he is talking to. You're not the you of the text. You're not that you. Let me, let me just show you what I mean by this. So look at verse 16, for example. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Okay? That, that's not you. 
That's not you. He has not sent you out into the midst of wolves. You will not be handed over and, and flogged in a synagogue. Okay, So you're not the you in the text. And it's important to, to sort of remind ourselves of that because what it means is, is that we need to interpret the text before we begin to apply the text. So the Bible is not, in its strictest sense, written to you or me. However, the Bible is also a divine book authored under inspiration of the Spirit of God. And and because that, it is a living book. And as a living book, it has a message that is very much appropriate and necessary for the people of God of all ages. So it's not written to you, it's not written to me in the the strictest sense, yet it is written to you and I. And it's a tension that we live in. The author to the Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 12 there sort of acknowledges the, the living quality of the Scriptures. Where he says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it is a living word. Because it's a living word, it speaks to us. It speaks to us, and it it speaks to us by instructing us in either the knowledge of God or by spirit-led application and guidance of its principles and precepts. Okay? So it either increases our knowledge of our God, so in that sense it is written to you and I, and it, it, through the Spirit of God who inspired it, we can apply its message and teaching, its principles and its precepts, to life in 21st century Southern California that is so far removed culturally and historically from the original audiences to which it was written. This is a very, very amazing book. It is human and it is divine. And it is both. And now let me, let me just sort of illustrate what I'm talking about here. And, and uh, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6, Moses in uh, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He is writing to the Jews who have been just uh, delivered from their bondage in Egypt and are gathered there before the Lord at the foot of Mount Sinai. Pardon me, this is Deuteronomy 40 years later after the wilderness wandering. I was just testing to see whether you were listening. And... um, By your furrowed brows, I knew you were. Forty years after the exodus, uh, prior to their entrance into the promised land. But it is written to Israel. It is written to Israel, not to you and I. But there is uh, much that we can understand from this and knowledge uh, of God that we must take and apply from this. Okay? Or, for example, over in 1 Corinthians... Chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul provides an an illustration of how to draw application from the principles and precepts of the Scriptures. 
Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Well, that's a statement about agriculture. And then Paul goes on to say, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You can notice what Paul does with this. He takes a statement that when the ox is is pulling the threshing wheel, you're not to muzzle it, but it's enabled to eat uh, and partake of the work in which it does. Paul says, is it only about oxen? No, it's about people. And he says it's, what it means is that those who work, the plowmen, should, should partake of the work of the plowing. He should gain some of the harvest. And then Paul takes it another step. And he says, and by the way, we who have worked among you in spiritual harvest should be able to reap materially from you. And over in 1 Timothy 5, Paul uses it there to talk about the necessity of financial support for those who teach the Bible among the people of God. So you see how it takes a law about oxen, and he takes it all the way by application over to uh, paying your pastors, so, uh, which we like. So, so that's how, under the Spirit's guidance, we can take that which was for another people at another time and bring it all the way into the present. So even the historical accounts have meaning and value to us. They have meaning and they have value to us. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, Paul says, Now these things, and here he is, he is talking about Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. And he says, Now even these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we can gain instruction from this. Now, why do I bother with all of that? Why do I bother telling you all of that or reminding you of all of that? The reason is, and we need now to be back in Matthew chapter 10, the reason is because if we don't remember all of this and take it into account as we come to Matthew chapter 10, instead we make sort of an immediate application of verse by verse and try to apply it to ourselves, we're going to end up with some really screwy understandings of the issues of persecution. And we do need to talk about persecution, and we will talk about persecution beginning next week. But we need to see it first, the instructions here, as they are properly rooted in their historical context. Very, very easy to misunderstand what is being spoken about here in chapter 10 and come out with a whole theology of persecution and missions from this chapter and, and miss the whole point of why it is included here. All right? So, my first observation, simple enough, this passage is not written to you or me. But it is. Second, Second observation. Something dramatic is happening. Something dramatic is happening here in this passage. It it screams to you when you read it that there is something very, very, very dramatic happening here. When Jesus calls to himself the twelve 
disciples and, and makes them apostles and he sends them out, he is still at sort of the height of his popularity. He is a very popular figure right now in Galilee, moving freely in and about the various villages and cities, preaching the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and doing all kinds of amazing miracles. And as you might imagine, the ability to do these kingdom miracles makes one quite popular. And so he is at the height of his popularity here. But something really dramatic, I say, is happening because beginning in verse 16, he starts talking about persecution of the most horrendous nature. So how do you go from the height of popularity to to this incredible levels of persecution? What is going on? Let me illustrate for you, by the way, the, the dramatic nature. Why I say this is a dramatic, something dramatic is happening. The dramatic nature of the change that, that occurs here in the text beginning in verse 16. What I want to do is, is just sort of illustrate uh, by comparison uh, chapter 10 verses 1 to 15 with 16 to 25. I just want to kind of line them up next to each other and you can see what I mean. So, for example, in, in uh, verse 2... The disciples here are called apostles. They're called apostles. And as we have labored away to talk about, an apostle is, a, is an official representative, an official representative of uh, a sent one, in this case, the king himself. So they're, they're people of status. They're apostles. Yet by verse 16, they are now called defenseless sheep. They go from being apostles, official emissaries of the king, to now being called defenseless sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but, but that is definitely the penthouse to the outhouse kind of an experience. Okay? An apostle to a defenseless sheep. Something's going on here. Verse 6, those to whom they are, they are going are called lost sheep. Do you see that? Helpless sheep is the idea. That these, these lost sheep, these helpless sheep of the house of Israel are to whom they are going. But notice now in verse 16 that the, that the lost sheep, the helpless sheep, are now called wolves. They're now called wolves. So they've gone from being defenseless sheep to ravenous wolves. That's a pretty big change. Notice as well they're, they're, they're being sent to the house of Israel in, in verse 6, meaning the, the people, the nation of Israel. And yet by verse 18, they are now appearing before Gentiles. They're appearing before Gentiles, governors and kings and, and so forth. And then by verse 23, they're back before the people of Israel again. So there's, there's movement going on here. In this passage. Verse 11. It's a, it's a context, of, contact, uh, context of hospitality. Right? They're, they're saying, hey, whatever city or village you go into, and, and there, whoever invites you, stay with them. You know, they're, they're going to be hospitable to you. Stay in that house. Then you get to verse 17, and we're talking about being persecuted. Being persecuted, and you get to the end by 23, and, and they're running. 
the hospitality to persecution. Verse 14, they are in a position of rendering judgment upon the various villages to which they are going, right? If they won't heed your words, then treat them as if they are pagans who have no interest in the things of God. Shake out the dust from your feet and move on. You get to verse 23, and instead of them rendering judgment on the villages, now what's happening is they're, they're being said or being told, hey, listen, run. Run away. When the persecution gets, gets too, more than you can endure, run away. Verse 8, they're in a position of honor. Right? They're healing the sick, raising the, demon, or raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, casting out the demons. Freely you have received, freely give. The idea is, hey, you got all this power for free from, king, from the king. Make sure you give it away for free. Don't start selling it. You're in a place of incredible honor. You get to verse 25, and they're being slandered. They're being maligned. They're being, they're being said, or, or it is being said of them, that they're, that they're affiliated or associated with Beelzebub, the head of the demons. So there's something very, very dramatic going on here. All right, let me read it now. Now we've sort of made all those observations. Let me read it for you. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals, or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you or heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles." But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his children. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whatever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. 
For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his master, nor a slave above his teacher. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Very, very dramatic change of focus of what's going on here. When Jesus first sends them out, they are in a position of honor. They are in a position of status. They are in a position of authority. He, in fact, even warns them in verse 8, right? Don't, don't misuse this to, to enrich yourself personally. But he begins here in verse 16 to talk to them about a very different response. A very different response. And he's, he's at the height of his popularity. Jesus is at this time. But he knows. He knows that it's fickle, that the nation is fickle, that the, that the adulation of the crowds is going to be short-lived, that it is really focused on what they can get from him. In John 6, he says, you, you follow me because I fill your bellies. Something is going to change. As this nation begins to come to grips with the message of who Jesus is and what he requires of them in order for entrance into his messianic kingdom, they will turn away. The price will be higher than they're willing to pay. What he is offering them doesn't really resonate with them. They're quite satisfied with what they have. It is a narrow road he says, and a narrow gate, Matthew 7, to enter into Messiah's kingdom. What's going to become the reality here is that the broad gate and the broad road of the Pharisees is what they really want. It's what they really want. Now, the actual process has begun. The process of Rejection, the process of turning against him. So on the surface, tremendous popular appeal. But the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees has already begun to do its deadly work. They are already nipping at his heels. They are already attributing his miracles to to the power of Beelzebub, to the power of Satan himself. They cannot deny what he has done, so they begin to turn and deny the source of these miracles. What's going to happen for his apostles is that they're going to go from a position of status and honor, popularity with the crowds, to a position of they are complete outcasts, that they're going to pay with their own lives for their attachment to this king. They're going to become, in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a fragrance of Christ. And that fragrance of Christ elicits two different responses. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where he says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
And among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, and another an aroma from life to life. For some they will smell good, and they will be attractive. But for most, they will smell like death. The stench of rotting and decomposing flesh. And the nation will want nothing to do with them. So Jesus prophesies, beginning here in verse 16, of a future time. He's looking ahead to a future day. And he's, he's, telling, he's telling them, he's preparing them, that it's going good now. But it's not going to be like that forever. So he says, verse 16, Behold, listen, pay attention. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Persecution is coming. Severe, intense persecution. It's coming. So you need to be ready for it. And here he draws on a, on a Hebrew proverb about, uh, about serpents and doves. And, and we don't have this kind of proverb exactly in, in our English language, and so we can only approximate what he's talking about here. But the serpent it was known as, uh, as an animal or a beast that was shrewd or, or prudent. And the dove was, was known as, as an animal that, that was innocent. And he says, you are to, to adopt these, actually sort of opposing characteristics, but you are to adopt them both and hold them in tension together. You're to be cautious, prudent, like a serpent. Yet at the same time, you are, you are to not allow this caution, this, this prudence to, to overtake you such that you become suspicious of all people. You're to continue to offer yourself in innocence like a dove. So you now, when this time comes, are to, to change your approach to the nation. Now it's really interesting to me here in verse 16 for... For him to say that I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus is the good shepherd, isn't that right? What kind of a shepherd sends his sheep into the wolf pack? You ever think about that? I mean, it's one thing if a wolf sort of picks off a sheep, right? And that happened. But no shepherd worth his salt takes his whole, his whole flock of sheep and, and takes them to the wolf den and, uh, and drives them in. And yet that's what he is saying is going to happen here. These 12 men are going to be sent into the wolf den. And beloved, they're going to suffer immensely for it. Immensely. Jesus describes what their life is going to be like, living among the wolves. He, he does that beginning here in verse 17. He says first that, that you're going to be brought before religious and civil authorities, right? Beware of men, they will hand you over to the courts 
and scourge you in their synagogues, flog you in the synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. It's a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. He's going to deliver them into the place in which they are going to suffer. They are going to be beaten. They are going to be imprisoned. They are going to be brought before civil magistrates who will exact from them horrible and horrific punishments. Life in the wolf den. Beyond that, he he says, you're not going to have time or ability to to prepare your defense when this happens. So so basically, you're going to have to depend entirely upon God, verse 20, 19 and 20, right? When they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you're to say. It will be given to you. It's not you who speak. It's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So there'll be no preparation. Don't worry about it. You're going to be delivered over into the wolf den. And, and when you go into the wolf den, you'll have no ability to get ready for the confrontation. The wolves will, will descend upon you. And in that moment, you'll open your mouth and speak. But don't worry, God will care for you. Life in the wolf den. The most intimate of family relationships will now become hostile, violent, deadly. Now, we're talking about Jewish society. Jewish society, I mean, there is great honor and value in in familial relationships, right? The relationships between parents and children and brothers and sisters and so forth. This is a very high value in a Jewish culture. And Jesus is saying, listen, life in the wolf den, what's it like? What it means is those that are closest to you, those that should most naturally love you and protect you, will become the very ones who will lead to your capture and execution. Brother against brother. Father against child. Children against parents. They'll cause you to be put to death. There'll be a general hatred of you, verse 22, by all classes of men. You will be hated by all, he says, because of my name. Now, the all there, by the way, we ought to just say this. That's not all people without exception, right? It's not like every person who ever lives is not going to hate you. Okay? What it means is, is that all people without distinction, meaning that all classes of people will hate you. If all, pers- if all people who ever lived hated them, then nobody would come to follow the king. But what it means is that from, from one level of society to another, Across all various ethnic groups and so forth, you are going to be despised. There will be no respite for you. Your life, verse 23, will be an unsettled life. Unsettled. You'll be moving from city to city constantly, pushed and pressured by those who seek your life. No place to call your own. No, no place to settle down and, and raise your family and, and, and be quiet and just sort of in, you know, enjoy the good things of life that God has prepared. No, not for you. Not for you. You're going to be slandered. Verses 24 and 25. In the most vile of ways, you will be slandered. 
They are going to say that what you do, you do because you're in league with the devil. You're in league with the devil. All those good things you do, they are going to attribute to the work of Satan himself. Welcome to the wolf den. Welcome to the wolf den. Third observation. This passage wasn't written to us. Second, something dramatic is changing here. Third observation. The situation being described here transcends the twelve. It transcends the twelve. It goes beyond them. It goes beyond them. Verse 23, But when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This verse 23, by the way, has caused no end to confusion among Bible commentators. No end to the confusion. What does Jesus mean when he says, you're not going to finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes? Now, some people have tried to answer it in saying that basically what Jesus is saying to them is, listen, I'm sending you out to the villages, you're to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not going to finish getting to all of them before I return from my preaching tour on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and tell you the whole thing is over. Um, No, that's not what it means. At, at, At first you go, oh, that's kind of an appealing answer. But the problem is that it does not deal with this this little title, Son of Man. Do you see it? The end of verse 23? Son of Man. Son of Man is a hugely significant title. It is actually Jesus' most favorite title of self-designation. He most often refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is a very theologically dense and loaded title. To anyone who who understands the Old Testament, and certainly to the Jewish people to whom he is talking, a reference to himself as the Son of Man takes them immediately to the seventh chapter of Daniel, and that's where it's going to take you and I. So Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man. Very, very important, very important title. Because the, the title drags with it the theology of the book of Daniel, and in particular, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Now the book of Daniel in a very quick overview, lays out a series of visions, right? Daniel receives a series of visions. And in these series of visions, there, there are, it concerns the future of Israel and through Israel, the future of the world. So it is an unveiling of God's future plan for Israel and for the world laid out in a series of visions to the prophet Daniel. And the visions... Uh, And there are a number of them, but they reinforce the same message over and over again. And it concerns four world empires that are followed by a fifth empire that destroys them all. You see it in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, for example, in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2, there's Nebuchadnezzar's statue, right? There's four metals, there's gold, there's silver, there's bronze, and there's iron. And they represent four great world empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. 
And that statue in Daniel chapter 2 is crushed by a stone cut without hands. You remember? It crushes the entire statue and the stone becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth is the vision. We see in chapter 7 the vision of four beasts. We have a lion, that's Babylon. We have a bear, that's Medo-Persia. We have a leopard, that's Greece. And we have a beast with iron teeth, and that is Rome. Daniel chapter 8, there we only see two of the four empires, but we have a, we have a ram and a goat, so we're dealing with Medo-Persia and Greece. But the message of the book in all of the visions is repetitive and it is clear. And that is that there is a heavenly kingdom with a heavenly king, that means one who originates from heaven, who is going to come and crush the empires of the world and establish his own empire, his own throne, his own kingdom. So chapter 7, verse 13, is where the title, the Son of Man, is used. And Daniel says, I kept looking, verse 13, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Praise God. Praise God. Because as bad as it will get, as bad as it has gotten in the past, one like unto the Son of Man, that great messianic king is coming, and when he comes, he is going to crush the kingdoms of this world and establish his kingdom of eternal peace and prosperity for the people of God. It is the hope of God's people and has been from the beginning. Turning back to Matthew 10. The reference to the Son of Man. By the way, just maybe a tidbit. I don't know where else to put it in, so I'll put it in here. The the Jewish conception of, of the future was that they were living in the present age. The present age would be followed by the age to come. And the age to come is Messiah's kingdom. But between the present age and the age to come, there's a period of time called the wrath. The wrath to come. The present age ends with wrath. The wrath is followed by kingdom. By the way, you can see this. I'll just show you this quickly. Matthew chapter 3. This is widely widely understood. And by the way, it's widely understood because it's true and it's biblical. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist is, uh, is preaching there. When he, see, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from... Notice that... Who warned you to flee from what? The wrath to come. John's message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Listen, if the kingdom of heaven is close by, is at hand, then what that means is the wrath to come is even closer. Because the wrath precedes the kingdom. And so John is saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, listen, you had better run. Because if the king and the kingdom is close, the wrath is that much closer. All right, back to 10. You're not going to finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man, the Messianic King, comes. Comes from where? Comes from heaven. Comes from heaven. Jesus is speaking to them, and Jesus is speaking 
through them to a future time of wrath and persecution. By the way, I'm, I'm further persuaded of the, of, the, of the truthfulness of this interpretation just by looking at the Jewish nature of what's going on here. Notice verse 17, it, it talks about synagogues. Verse 18, you're going to be brought before Gentiles. What does that mean? Well, that means you're not a Gentile yourself. Yeah, you're, you're a Jew. You're traveling, verse 23, through the cities of Israel. So this is in the context of, of Israel and the return of the Son of Man or the coming of the Son of Man. So when does the Son of Man come in the future following wrath to, to bring an end to the preaching that the kingdom is close by? The answer is in the tribulation. In the tribulation. What it means is there's another group of Jewish evangelists someday who are going to experience incredible persecutions as they move about the nation of Israel, saying to the nation, repent, because Messiah is close at hand. He is coming quickly. Coming quickly. That message is the message that it preached, and I think it's 144,000 spoken of in Revelation chapter 7 that are preaching during the tribulation time. So Jesus is speaking here to the twelve and through the twelve to a future group of people. All right, that's a lot of material. That's a lot of stuff. But we have to, we have to do it that way. We have to do it that way. Trust me, we've got to do it this way. I would love to now begin to apply it, but we're not going to do that. We need to, we need to just capture this, think about this, let this sort of percolate inside. And now, when we come back next week, so you have to come next week. Okay? Anybody who's not going to be here next week? Shame on you. Come next week, and we're going to go back to this now, and we're going to begin to unpack what can we learn from this that we can apply today to you and I. Okay? That's the direction we're going. Father, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and... And Father, sometimes it, it is, a, it is a dense, it is deep, it is uh, difficult. But persistence always pays off. And so, Lord, we, it is our desire not to, not to just find surface applications and, and in effect to treat the Scriptures like a, a piece of Play-Doh that we can shape it any way we like, but to, to study, to show ourselves approved, to do the hard work of rightly dividing the Word of Truth and understand exactly what you said and to who you said it and why you said it and what does it mean and then to begin to address the question of how does it apply to us so father i i pray that you would seal the truth of your word into our hearts this week as we meditate on the this passage and and prepare us for next week when we come back and talk about okay what does it all mean to us today how can we learn from it Father, help us to be good, humble students of the Scriptures. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.